Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Sukhava Bodhe Sukhava Bodhe Swa 
Atma Sukhava Bodhe Sahatma Sukhava Bodhe Nishreyase Nishreyase Jangalikaya Mane Jangalikaya Mane Samsara Samsara Hala 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 Mohashantyai Mohashantyai Hala Hala Mohashantyai Hala Hala Mohashantyai Hala Hala Mohashantyai Hala Hala Mohashantyai Samsara Hala Hala Samsara Hala Hala Mohashantyai Mohashantyai Samsara Hala Hala Mohashantyai Samsara Hala Hala Mohashantyai Abahu Abahu Purusha Purusha Akaram Akaram Abahu Purushakaram Abahu Purushakaram Abahu Purushakaram Abahu Purushakaram Shankachakrasi Shankachakrasi Dharinam Dharinam Shankachakrasi Dharinam Shankachakrasi Sahasra Shirasam Shvetam Sahasra Shirasam Shvetam Pranamami Patanjalim Vande Gurunam Charanaravinde Vande Gurunam Charanaravinde Sandarshita Swa Atma Sukhava Buddhe Sandarshita Swa Atma Sukhava Buddhe Nihishreyase Nihishreyase Jangalikayamane Samsara Hala Hala Samsara Hala Hala Mohashantyai Mohashantyai Abahu Purushakaram Abahu Purushakaram Shankha Chakra Siddharinam Sahasra Shirasam Shvetam Pranamami Patanjalim
Good evening. Week number two on the traditional Ashtanga Yoga invocation, which is what we're studying. And some of you were here for the last five days where we've been studying and chanting uh, the text that uh, this chant, or the first half of this chant, comes from, which is called the Yoga Taravali, which means the Zodiac of Yoga, which was written by a a philosopher named Shankaracharya, who's uh, most famous as the prominent non-dualist philosopher in India. Um, And Shankaracharya was part of the Sri Vidya Tantric tradition. Um, And the Yoga Taravali is a very esoteric text. Um, And the first paragraph of the Yoga Taravali is the section Vande Gurunam, that first paragraph of this chant that we're chanting. The second paragraph, which we'll get to, is a visualization of the supposed author of the Yoga Sutra named Patanjali. Um, so, um, last week we got through, I'm not sure, three words. <laughs> uh, Vande, so I bow. Uh, guru Nam, so that's the term Guru pluralized, which is all the teachings which are Charana Aravinde, so which are uh, two lotus feet, which are your own lotus feet. And it's really good you have two feet. So your feet are called Krama and Vikrama, so, which means foot, it means step, and counter step. And so if you watch your mind in meditation practice, then you'll really see these two feet. So Krama is the first step, so you have a thought, and then as soon as you have a thought, you have a counter-thought. And then as soon as you have a counter-thought, then you have a counter-counter-thought. And then if you can't find your breath, you have a counter-counter-counter-thought. And this goes on and on and on. But actually, um, this is mostly just caused by binary thinking. So the tendency of the mind is just always to create opposites. So the mind loves to just define things by their opposite. Because the mind is a context maker. It's just taking whatever's arising and putting it into a context, usually creating an opposite. I like this. So Carl Jung said the first movement of the ego is uh, splitting things into opposites. I like, I don't like, which creates a self. Because it creates a subject and an object creates the split. Um, So um, let's back up. So in meditation practice, it's really important that we don't spend the practice just entertaining all of our thoughts. It's so seductive to do this. Um, It's really important that you recognize that so much of your day, you're just caught up in the momentum of thinking. And in meditation practice, we're not really following the momentum of thinking. We're actually using the breath to drop underneath language and then 
from that place, we're looking at thinking to see that thoughts themselves, so we're looking into the nature of thoughts. And then you can see that thoughts have the characteristic of impermanence. They're constantly changing. And they have no ontological reality. So when you actually go try and find a thought and find out what it's made out of, you can't find it. Same is true with your mind. There's a wonderful story about Bodhidharma. Um, Somebody goes to him and says, um, my mind, I'm having so much trouble with my mind, can you help me put it to rest? And so Bodhidharma says, go find your mind and bring it back and I'll put it to rest for you. So student leaves and you know you don't know in the story how long like was it an hour or was it like eight years <laughs> and the student comes back and then says uh, I've looked everywhere and I can't find my mind and Bodhidharma says there I've put it to rest for you and this is actually a helpful thing when you're looking at thoughts is to stop personalizing them so instead of saying, like, my mind is really busy, you can just really say the mind is busy. <laughs> busy mind. Okay? And one thing that's helpful is just to see that the thoughts that you kept referring back to a me um, actually have no inherent substantiality. They're like a little more than a cloud. And the only power they have is what you invest in them. And this is where we get into trouble. So in meditation practice, it's really important that you're constantly checking your attitude so that when thoughts arise, if the attitude is spacious, then the thoughts can arise and they can unfold and they can change. Okay? Um, for those of you who are artists, this is a really important practice because uh, you really need your imagination. And when you don't know how to work with thoughts, you end up falling into the same repetitive thinking that goes on over and over again. And then the imagination doesn't have space to function. Okay? So first we just need to see the empty nature of thoughts. We just look right at a thought and just see what it is. Get to know what it is. It's really easy to talk about. But actually in your meditation practice, uh, it's really crucial that you're just seeing the nature of a thought, so you're not investing in it. And of course, the way we all invest in it is we personalize it. It's my thought. It's mine. It's mine. Which is a whole other thought. Oh, there's a thought. So that's krama. The thought arises. Vikrama is like, and it's my thought. And then you have to have vikrama. <laughs> like you have a counter-thought. Thought, counter-thought. Anyways. Oh, yeah, we've got to keep going. Vandik. <laughs> now we're going to get past the first part. Sandar shita swa atma sukhava bodhe nihishre ase jangale kayamane samsara hala hala mohashantyai. So when thoughts arise and when you're caught up in them, one of the ways we let go of thought is we take the tongue and we release it. So when you release your tongue, the soft palate 
which is the root of your palate, so way up in the soft palate, also releases. And it's hard to say what the root of your soft palate is. Like maybe it's your ethnoid bone, maybe it's your pituitary gland. It's really hard to say. But there's this feeling when you smile softly and you let go that it actually starts somewhere up in the soft palate. And we've all had this experience, I think, right? It's like, imagine somebody threw you a hot potato. As soon as you grabbed it in your hand, soft palate goes. And there's a moment where there's just no thought. Okay? So like... It's actually like when you're meditating and you finally get it and you're just like... So the letting go actually happens at first physiologically. And we can all feel this if you just let the root of the palate release. And this happens all the time when you, when you see um, something really beautiful. When you look at something really beautiful, the first thing that happens is your soft palate releases. And then the tongue goes quiet because there's nothing to say. The tongue is just like... And the energy of the tongue fascially flows all the way back down into the center of your heart. So it's said, actually, that the present moment is just fire in the center of your heart. That's like... Whoa. That's why it's helpful to just have no idea what you're doing in meditation practice. So it's like all these people, are they're all like really working hard meditating. You come in on your first day and you just sit there and go right into samadhi. Because <laughs> you're just like... Huh? <laughs> I know. And then it's just like totally open. It's like little children. They're just like. And then they're bawling their eyes out because it's so painful. Mm-hmm. Actually, really see what's there. Um, anyways, so um, the descent, the descent. So when you release the root of your palate, it's said that what falls down from the root of your palate is called sham, which means peace. Okay? And it's where we get the word shamatha. So there's two kinds of meditation that we practice at center of gravity. One is called shamatha, which means stopping and calming. And that comes from the root sham, which is where you get the word shanti which just means peace, okay? So that's the practice of like feeling the breath until there's real calmness. And the other kind of practice that we do is called vipassana. Pasha is to see, so pasha is looking, and v is an intensifier, so it means really looking closely, okay? (laughs) Sometimes it's translated as insight, literally, insight. Vipassana. In Pali, the word is pasana. So we're going to get vipassana. Um, so these are these two different practices we do. So sham is where you get the student to really work on just calming and stabilizing their attention. And I really like working with the breath to do this. Just inhaling and exhaling. And even if your technique really sucks... If you just sit around and feel your breath, you'll feel your nervous system slowly settling. And then we introduce a practice called vipassana, 
where you go into that space and you look really closely. And you look really closely and you see all of your habits. And then most of you, I'll give you a little practice to do in that space. So sometimes I ask you to, you know, become that space. Some people I ask you to ask a question in that space. Like, for example, who's breathing? If you ask that question and you just, you, you can't get calm, it's kind of a waste of time. You just spin in circles because you're trying to answer it. But if you actually just find some calmness, then you go into that space and you just go, or you can just go, who? Or like, who's listening? And then the mind just goes, and the soft palate releases, and the mind goes. And then another part of the mind comes in because it's scared and tries to give you an answer. And then the whole thing gets wrecked. And then you have to start from the beginning again. Or you get a good answer, and then you come to me and you say, oh, I figured it out. And then I'll, you know, throw something at you. (laughs) An egg or like this bell. Or another technique. Um, So all of this is to uh, create um, shantyaya, which is is shanti, which is peace. And it's the peace that comes from letting go of moha. So the word moha means delusion. Actually, the word moha means upside-down thinking. So we're letting go of delusion. Letting go of delusion. And the way we do this is through jangali kaya mane. So this is, this is really cool. So jangali is where you get the word jungle. jungle. And so it's said that your, the jungle, which is actually your body and your mind, all the habits of your body and your mind, are samsara. They're repetitive. Okay? And they don't have a lot of meaning when they're repetitive. Okay. You know when you just do something mechanically? Like, it's really cool to learn this chant, right? But some people, they learn the chant, and then they forget about the vibration of the chant. And they just start doing it mechanically. And then they lose the, the sacredness of the chant. Because you just like, it's like sun salutations, right? After you've done 900, it gets a little repetitive, and you can lose the beginner's mind. So when you have habits that are repetitive, they create meaninglessness. And this is called samsara. Okay? And it's said we've all swallowed an herb that's poisonous, which is the halahala is the herb, poisonous herb, of samsara. And this is creating a jungle of habits in the mind and the body but the jungle is jungali kayamane. So it said that the jungle, and this is the cool part of the chant, is a physician. Isn't that neat? So all your habits, okay, so think about this. All of your habits, you know those ones? You heard, have you heard about people who have habits? <laughs> Addictions, things that they just can't stop repeating. Well, so according to this chant, those habits can be moha, They can be a delusion, and they can also create the conditions for peace, shanti, if you recognize that the jungle is actually a physician. 
but your habits are healing. Your habits are healing if you have the right attitude. How many of us are trying to get rid of all our habits to be perfect? This happens sometimes, right? Where it's like we have certain habits that we're open to working with. It's like, oh, my hamstrings are really tight. I'm really open to stretching them. But then there's like you have friends and they point out other habits. And it's like, oh, I'll get to those ones. First, I'm just going to work on my hamstrings. (laughs) But if you're in relationship, uh, people will bring up um, patterns of the jungle that you don't want to look at. But actually, those people, which you tend to hate, um, they're called co-workers, children. Um, They're actually uh, the healers. They're physicians. So in Greek mythology, there's this uh, um, archetype of the wounded healer. And the wounded healer is somebody who becomes a physician because they recognize that their woundedness can actually heal themselves and others when they really open to them. So I remember a few years ago, I was teaching a woman who's a psychiatrist, and she is kind of like one of the Canadian experts on eating disorders. And she did a a really long course that I taught, uh, a year-long course on meditation. And about eight months into it, we went on a silent retreat, five days. And she came on the silent retreat, and it was so hard for her because we all eat our meals together. And it really, it was just tearing her apart because all she saw was her eating habits. And then she came in for an interview with me crying, saying, like, I'm an expert on eating disorders. And because she found a way to really connect with other women who had eating disorders because she, her heart was so open. She, she totally got it. But actually, she then saw that she had never really healed her own. So she could connect with others because she could feel it. And then she had all these techniques from her training as a psychiatrist to do with people. But actually, really in her life, she had never really been able to work with the momentum of that mind state. Um, And so I, I asked her, when you're hungry, what do you want? So this was her practice, all the retreat. When you're hungry, find out what you want. And this was her meditation practice. Whenever she was really hungry and she was just obsessing, she would just go deeper than that. She'd calm down. She'd say, what's wanted here? What, what do I want? And then that became the next day, who wants this? Who is wanting? And then the third day, the practice was just wanting. Just for her to feel wanting. And then, because the form of the practice hold, holds her and she gave herself Uh, she allowed herself to trust the form, she could just be in the feeling of wanting and just really see craving without this whole story about I have an eating disorder, I'm a psychiatrist, I'm supposed to be the person who helps everyone. 
And then she really saw her upside-down thinking. Mm-hmm. And what was healing for her was the upside-down thinking, the moha, the delusion that was preventing peace, peace in her own life, was that she was always personalizing her craving. Like, just because she wanted something, she had to have it for her, for me. And she never saw that before. So all the work she was doing, just all the techniques she had up her sleeve, her whole toolbox, it didn't help. So then she really became a healer after that. Because she started to heal her own eating disorder. And then she had these two pieces there. One is the heart that's just open to other women with eating disorders because she knows what it's like. And the other is really what it feels like to struggle on the path of saying, yes, this is going on in my life. And it's rooted in craving. And nobody else can heal that for me. Nobody else can heal that for me. Just like I can't practice for you. So I have a commitment every day I do my practice. And I expect you to do the same thing. Because then when we have evenings like this, we can go through these teachings and it really means something to you because you're working with these patterns in your own life. Otherwise, they're just good ideas. And because of vikrama, they'll become bad ideas. Because they'll just be good idea. Every time you have a good idea, if you hang out with it long enough, it becomes really bad. <laughs> this is the story of the Bhagavad Gita, right? Is that... Um, Every time Arjuna... That's why there's so many chapters in the Bhagavad Gita. Every time Arjuna solves a problem, the way he solves the problem, the solution, then sets up his next crisis. Has anyone done this before in their life? Like, So you've got a problem in your life, so you just kind of move stuff around, and then it's solved. But then the stuff you moved around actually then becomes the next... Uh, really big problem. My basement is like this. So whenever I have like something messy, I just there's this area in my basement. I just put it in my basement. Yeah. Um, uh, a few weeks ago, my friend and I are building a fence right now. It's we're three months we've been building a fence, and, and then we were moving a piece of wood and it broke the window to my basement. So now all the cold air is coming in. So then I had to go fix the window and I got into the basement. And I've got like a pile of things I've thrown up against. So then I had to like spend the afternoon organizing everything. And I don't have very many things, but so I could get to the window. So anyways, you know what this is like, I'm sure. So. A lot of stuff for a renunciate. <laughs> Any questions before we keep going? Yeah. A total <laughs> diversion, I'm sorry. But um, the Yoga Taravali, you yeah. said, was the Yoga Zodiac. Oh, yeah, it's called it's the like, Zodiac of Yoga. Is that because it's connected to any kind of cosmology know. or yeah. something? Not that I know of. So, where does that term come from? I don't know. Okay. Um, I'm not sure. So, so, there's this weird thing in Tantra Yoga because you see, Nowadays, if you have 20 bucks, we'll teach you yoga. But before, 
a lot of these practices were really a secret. And so first, like, the teacher would check out a student, like, how dedicated they really were. So the teacher wants to make sure, like, you're really on fire to learn. And if you weren't, like, why would they get involved? The teacher works so hard to, like, have a practice that's deep, that's, you know. And then, like, if the student's, like, not really burning, then why get involved, right? So um, um, some students were so um, dedicated that they would, like, chop an arm off. Oh, you want to see how dedicated I am? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma, he, he really wanted to practice, and he couldn't stay awake when he sat up all night to be awake. So he uh, cut his eyelids off so that he would stay awake. And it said that he took his eyelashes and he made a little hole in a cave and he put the eyelashes in that hole and that's where the first green tea bush grew. And that's where green tea comes from, is Bodhidharma's eyelids. So next time you come to me and you're like, I'm so sleepy in meditation practice, (laughs) I'll say, here's a scalpel. (laughs) Um, So anyways, to answer your question. Um, So students had to be really dedicated. And so what they would do is they would take terms that were common and they'd use them, like the texts would use them in strange ways. So that when you read the text, it didn't really make any sense. So, for example, the word prana. So the word prana means the energy of breathing, right? And there's different kinds of prana. Well, the first kind of prana is called prana. So, which actually refers to the inhale. But if you didn't know that, suddenly the whole text doesn't make any sense because the instructions don't make any sense. Um, then there's other texts where they would take like um, texts on astrology and so they would have this astrology text and then they would take the core teachings that they want to express and they put it in the middle of the book so you'd have this book on astrology and you're like reading along and then suddenly there's all these like really deep breathing techniques in the middle and then we'd go back to astrology again so the person who's like the uninitiated, they'd have no idea what this was. And like, oh, this is an astrology. Oh, and then there's this weird section. People do this with the Yoga Sutra. It's like everyone reads it, and then they skip chapter three, <laughs> which is what really goes on when you meditate. Um, so it might be likely that you know they would name a text in some esoteric way so that nobody would go near it. I mean, another one of Shankaracharya's texts that's really important is like the ocean of beauty. (laughs) Or you hide the teaching in the bark of a dog. (laughs) (laughs) Any other questions or comments? Yes. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. But today I did 
today, about what, a half an hour, 35 minutes. Yeah. Things were coming, things were going. I was trying to push it out. I'm not sure if you're supposed to have the thoughts or not have the thoughts. Yeah. Control the thoughts. Yeah. Just try to have no thoughts. I don't know, kind of like, what is the. Yeah. Is there a result, a result that somebody is looking for? Yes. Uh, we'd start by feeling the breath so that we're undercutting the tendency towards just investing in thinking. And that's why I spend a lot of time setting up the detail of the alignment of the pose, the quietness of the tongue, so that as we inhale and exhale, we're feeling the breath as a physical practice. And what happens is when we treat it as a physical practice, it starts to take the energy of the mind that's always wanting to be spinning in itself and pulls it down behind the navel where we can feel breathing. And then when thoughts come up, we come back again to the feeling of the breath. And we do this over and over again until some calmness and stability arises. If it doesn't arise one of the techniques that I really recommend is when you inhale, you say to yourself, peace in. And when you exhale, you say to yourself, peace out. So when you inhale, just... You don't say it out loud. (laughs) You exhale. And then you just feel the peacefulness of inhale, peacefulness of exhale. That's your mantra. And you really just let that enter the body. So the mantra's right behind the navel. Peace in, peace out. So that slowly, the attention that's constantly trying to uh, hook itself in to every thought pattern that arises gets pulled back into the midline of your posture, into the present moment. Um, That would be the first stage. And then for some people, I would keep them there for four or five years. Um, Just being able to know what it's like to not be constantly in binary thinking. Uh, Then, uh, some other people, we might work where once you can do that, then when thoughts arise, we really just look at them. And then we come back to the breath. For other people, we might really concentrate on not looking at thoughts and just staying really, really concentrated in your breathing. And then for other people, we might actually bring in counter thoughts, like the question that I mentioned, like, who's thinking? So there are many, many different techniques, but eventually what starts happening is we stop making thoughts the enemy. So we start to see that the vrittis, so these fluctuations of attention, are actually um, empty. They don't have any real uh, separate self. They don't have any essence. That's what in philosophy is non-essentialism. Is that what it's called? Essentialism. Andre, what's it called? Essentialism? When you invest things. Non-essentialism. Okay. So, um, that's what we're doing. Does that answer your question? 
So, so thoughts are not bad. Ultimately, are you trying to be absolutely no thought, or that's not feasible for most people? Go find your thoughts and bring them back to me. So, uh, don't worry about it. Just practice. One of my teachers used to always say, Practice and all is coming. So don't worry about whether that you're going to end thoughts or stop thoughts or just practice and watch what happens. It's really more interesting. Because if I tell you now, oh yeah, you're going to stop all your thoughts, you're going to torture yourself in meditation. And then, Or if I say, well actually no, just let all the thoughts be there, you're just going to be like, oh, oh well then what's the point? My thoughts are there, right? So, I mean, whatever I say won't help you. So you just if you just practice, then you'll start to see for yourself. That's why you all need to have a daily practice. What length of time? I suggest to people when they start 30 minutes every day, early in the morning, yeah. before the birds. Uh, Shankaracharya says in the Yoga Taravali, uh, when you really drop in to the central axis, the ears open, and then the birds will come and make nests in your ears. Isn't that nice? Yeah. Anybody else? Any other questions or comments? Vande Gurunam Charanaravande. Sanskrit? Yeah, Sanskrit. So, um, the last thing I'll say is, so this release of moha, this release of delusion, which is being called here shanti, or shantyaye, or peace, um, it's not like an eternal peace like it, people are always like okay I struggle and I meditate and then I'm going to get shanti and then I'm going to get peace and I'll never have a menstrual cramp <laughs> ever again okay um, um, there are other practices for that um, but what's meant by peace is like it is the moment when you're caught up in something and then you release it. So, does everybody know that moment? So it, it's, you know, it's like if you touch a hot wire, and then you release it. So just in that moment, you release it. And in releasing it, you give whatever's arising space to be as it is, which means to change. So then it goes from being an object relating to a subject to just being something that flows, okay? And then if it flows, then the subject flows, okay? So then if I experience myself as fluid, it's probably because I'm not caught up in creating objects all the time, all right? Yes? Yeah. Don't ruminate. Yeah, that's what I do. 
It's so easy to say. Don't ruminate. So basically what that means is uh, come back to your breathing. I said this the other day, I think, but you know, whenever, whenever I work with young people, I always tell them that your breath is your best friend. It's so loyal. It's always going to be... If it's not there, you're dead. So don't worry about it. But your breath's always there. So when you catch yourself starting to ruminate, you have to be able to come back to something other than the rumination. And that's why it's so important to have an object of meditation, to have an anchor point, which is the breath. Otherwise, you get what's called papancha, which means conceptual proliferation. Don't you love that word? Let's say it in English. No, let's say it in Pali. Papancha. It's punchy. Papancha. So, I like whenever I say papancha, I like to think of a train. Okay, so you you start to see yourself getting obsessed about something, right? And then, so there's like the engine, and then you start ruminating. So there's like one car, and then another car, and then. But conceptual proliferation means it's not just like a train that's linear. It's like they're piled in. They're like Russian dolls, mm. one in the other in the other. And then the mind separates from that and then starts conceptualizing about what's... And it's just like, it's just building more and more of a self, actually, and creating a lot of suffering. So the interesting thing about rumination um, or compulsion is that when you don't invest in it and you have something to come back to, it has no power. If you can quit smoking for half a day, you can quit smoking. Right? It's an amazing thing. Now, there's no doubt there's kind of biological factors and chemical factors. But if you can just release in that moment, it's possible. It's possible. So I encourage you as we're exploring these practices and these ideas that we don't take these terms like letting go or shanti and like make them really holy and like put them up there like, oh, I'm going to practice and one day I'm going to get shanti. But instead we see that in the moment we let go, which is physiological, as much as it is psychological, there's no craving. There's no clinging. And then there's no self, exactly. Because there's what's happening but it's not actually happening to me. Does this make sense? So we can all try this. So this is your homework. I encourage you to take the chant and to memorize it. Okay? It's really short and it's really easy. And it's written in Sanskrit. So the word, the word Sanskrit literally means to polish. Okay? And so it's a language that's very, very polished. Um, and what that means is they're able to... Does anybody here know German? German is like Sanskrit, where you take all these words and you chop them together and, like, glue them together. So you have these, like, really long words that's really, like, 40 words. 
Okay. Maybe that's why all the early Sanskrit scholars were German. Because they're like, oh, I recognize this. Forty words in one. Um, so anyways, um, so what it, it allows you to kind of chop up words and smush them together so that your sentences are very pithy to the point. And then, it's, and then the, the uh, texts become really short. And this is an oral tradition. So actually here, you know, we can read it to help memorize it because we're so visual. But I learned this chant just like totally orally. So you just listen really carefully and it, and it just stays in you. And the first few times it's just kind of like, like all these new sounds in your mouth is like, uh, and then these things start happening where you're like, wake up in the morning and one of the words is just like, you know, Vande, Vande. And then you know the meaning of it, and Vande is like, to bow. And then like all day you're like, and it's like this devotional feeling. And then, and then just like certain phrases start coming, like, Chadanadavinde. Like, and then you start to, when you say it, it's just like, you feel your lotus feet. So, um, I encourage you to kind of feel the Sanskrit a little bit. Uh, not because Sanskrit's some sacred, exotic language, but just because when, when the sentences get chopped up, they do it in a phonetic way that really relates to internal prana. So I encourage you to, to try and memorize this. And then maybe you can try chanting it. And, and then... You don't have to carry books around anymore. You just walk around and you're like, you know. You see all these people on their iPads listening to Justin Bieber. And, you know, that's one teaching. But you're just like. And, and that's the practice. So, let's finish by chanting.